Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. How's it going to look in your report? It'll look like justice. That's what the man got. And one loved the spotlight. What exactly do you do on the show, Jack? I teach Brett Chase how to walk and talk like a cop. The Night Owl Massacre. This is a heinous crime that requires swift resolution. Six victims. One of them, one of our own. Interrogations will be led by Lieutenant Evan Exley. I need some backup. Come on. All right, college boy, I'll help. Now... All of them are faced with solving one case. I want confessions, Edmund. Oh, I'll break them, sir. Welcome to Rewatchability. It's the podcast where we rewatch old movies and see how they hold up in the modern eye. I'm Robert Larone. With me, as always, is. One of you's got to say something. <laughs> Blaine Waters. <laughs> And I'm <laughs> we we nailed that one. Well, it's we hard over it. the internet because I don't I know. know who's supposed to go when, and we always take turns hosting it's it. True. This is a terrible we should system. Script it. it is. I I deferred to you. I should have just jumped on it. We have had no, seven months good. to figure this out, and just can't <laughs> be bothered. You know what? We'll figure it out by the time the pandemic's over. That. I'm confident in. Yeah, you guys work on the vaccine. We'll <laughs> figure this shit out. We're doing our part. <laughs> Dolly Parton, give us uh, a small donation to uh, work on this. <laughs> oh, my God. Isn't that the most amazing thing? Like, really what is. a hero. She just, like, she turns out better and better every time, you know, you find something out about her. The only bad thing she did was that one dinner theater that, you know, sort of uh, didn't talk about slavery in the Civil War. But other than that, she's perfect. Well, no, they, it did talk about it. It talked about it a little right. too much. It was the entire theme of the restaurant. But that got changed, I think, right? Right, yeah. 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 She's in our good books again. Oh, she's the best. I'm going to be cranking the uh, Dolly Parton, Kenny nice. Rogers Christmas album this holiday season. I can tell yeah. you that. Yeah. And... I don't mean to break into anybody's bubble or anything, but this is the movie that we're talking about. Oh, Technically, yeah. I think, a holiday movie. Absolutely. Yes, that's right. And it's not quite December yet when you're hearing this, so I know we usually start to throw these out around December. But you know what? I'm going to count it this year. <laughs> 2020 has been shit. 
We're having a Christmas movie early. Oh yeah, everyone's already putting up their Christmas lights and watching like Netflix Christmas garbage. So absolutely, I think everyone's getting into the holiday spirit a little earlier. I feel like 2020, we should just have two Christmases. Like, I feel like everyone should just double dose it. Last half as many <laughs> as Vince Vaughn and Reese Witherspoon could handle. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I think we could do that. <laughs> <laughs> but before we get into that movie, we should first of all thank our Patreons. Those are the people who give us a little bit of money each month. Twelve Christmases, if you will. Uh, but just little gifts of one, three, five dollars And that helps us keep the podcast going. And in return, you get the podcast early ad-free, and sometimes you get some bonus content, like we do some special bonus episodes. We did one on the new Bill and Ted movie not so long ago. You never know when the next one's going to pop out, so become a Patreon, and uh, you'll be ready when it does. (laughs) That sounds like a threat. (laughs) (laughs) It's a bit of a threat. (laughs) It can pop out any (laughs) time. You have a wife, you have a family, you know, you want them to be happy, you want them to be healthy. Become a Patreon. (laughs) But we have a a big movie, a really huge movie, and I mean that this time. It was actually critically acclaimed. It made a big splash at the Oscars. And the reason that we're talking about it is that it is a listener request from one of our Patreons. That's right. Our Patreon, Michael, wanted us to talk about this movie. And that movie is 1997's Le Confidential. (laughs) Yes, the French movie. (laughs) Yeah. Classic of French cinema. I don't know. I could only find it dubbed in English, which was strange, but uh, I really wanted to get the uh, subtitled versions, the best way to watch it. No, it's L.A. Confidential, 1997, directed by Curtis Hansen from the book by James Elroy. And this is a big sort of neo-noir movie that was sort of, I don't know, it, the 90s was all about neo-noir, wasn't it? Like, There was stuff like Pulp Fiction. Everybody wanted to do like that sort of like, you know, tough, gritty material. So, Blaine, when was the first time that you saw L.A. Confidential? I saw it near when it came out, like in high school. I remember going to the theater and seeing it with some friends. It was, I mean, I remember just absolutely loving it. It being kind of an unimpeachable movie. It, it, it was just so good. The characters were so broadly drawn and yet specific. I just remember it all coming together and it felt like kind of a more grown-up Guy Ritchie film, like with like substance to it, you know? Right. Where everything kind of came together in the end. And... uh and yeah, I absolutely Guy Ritchie, it. really? Well, kind of like in the crime style. I remember back in high school, like I, I had just seen Lock, Stock, and Two Smoking Barrels and loved it. And so I wanted to like get every kind of crime shoot 'em up movie. And this wasn't that. It was way more adult and way more, I don't know, it feels like thorough and figured out and, uh, and just, yeah, more mature. So I loved it. And it's um, James Elroy, right? Based on Based on his... Yeah, is that what I said? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, yeah, you said that. Okay, good, Ooh. good. <laughs> it's a Stephen King book. Uh, really good. Daniel Steele. The ending though, <laughs> and and the Black Dahlia is part of it. And I remember watching that too, and being like, "This is going to be great." Because LA Confidential was so great. So, oh man, yeah, I never saw that, but I read the book. 
that it was based on and yeah. then read the synopsis of the movie. I was like, oh, wow, they really messed up. And that was Brian De Palma, too, made that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It, it was disappointing. So I feel like this movie set a really high bar for, for Elroy adaptations. Um, what about What about you, JM? When did you first see this? I also saw it in the theater. The first time I saw it, I just wanted to go see it because uh, I'd heard good things. And I also loved it. As you re- thinking about it now, I realized, fittingly, I saw it at a now defunct cinema in Toronto called the Hollywood Theater. Ooh. Uh, it, was, it was a very fitting, fitting place to see LA Confidential. And then <laughs> I saw it with a woman who looked like Marilyn Monroe. <laughs> And then, so the second time I saw it, it, it was a double feature. Yeah, they used to have these kind of sneak previews where they'd play a an old movie and then a, a newer movie that hadn't come out yet. So the new movie that hadn't come out yet was uh, was In and Out with uh, Kevin Klein. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> good double feature. The two Kevins, which is you know? Which That's is good. <laughs> yeah. It's it's a good movie from what I remember, but yeah, odd odd bill to play with L.A. Confidential. But I loved L.A. Confidential so much that I wanted to stay in and watch it again. And it's one that I've watched, you know, year after year. I return to it because it, it really is one of my favorite movies, wow. especially like a, a favorite movie of like the movies that came out in our lifetime and in our youth. You know, like it. It's it's nice that we were able to you know experience its release and it feels that kind of timeless to me in a way, and uh, I I do consider it kind of a Christmas movie. Oh, I I yeah, like it it was for years. Like if you know, right around this time of year when you feel like watching something that may be a little Christmassy, but you don't want to you know go straight to. Uh, it's a Wonderful Life or something. It's a good, uh, you know, there's a good portion of a set of Christmas. I remember I had the soundtrack uh, when I was younger, and the soundtrack uh, has a few Christmas songs on it. So it, it's always kind of reminded me of Christmas. And yeah, so I've always been a fan. I, I honestly would have been shocked if this viewing had somehow changed my <laughs> opinion of it. But we'll get into that. Rob, what about you? When did you see it? I, unlike you guys, didn't see it in the theater. I didn't see it till later. I rented it when I was in university and I was sort of going through my crime movie exploration phase. So that was like a lot of, you know, Martin Scorsese movies that I hadn't seen and gangster films. And yeah, and then a couple of the sort of like noir sort of films, including this one. And I... I liked it, but I also, I think I felt a little bit perplexed by it, too. I think, you know, maybe it was just because I hadn't seen that many noir films at that point. I didn't know, like, the vocabulary or how the sort of genre tropes worked. Maybe it was because I was drinking and I maybe passed out during parts. (laughs) It could be either of those two things. Uh, But I didn't... I didn't love the movie. I sort of knew that it was a good movie, and I hadn't really thought too much about it until we were scheduled to watch it again but you know since that time I have gotten a little bit more into noir uh, and I've learned to sort of appreciate like a lot more of the sort of tropes and the structure bits and everything like that and so I was really looking forward to uh, getting to give this one another chance even though I basically remembered nothing about it at all I think I just remembered that Guy Pierce was in it that's about it or and Kevin Spacey Obviously, uh, which is the one thing that uh, 
I don't know. I mean, yeah, I, I would rather not address it. I don't think there's anything to say about it, but maybe there, actually there is something to say about it. Well, yeah, I I will say like when I said my opinion wouldn't have changed between the last time I saw it and now, the big change is, you know, I think the last time I saw it was probably just long enough ago that we hadn't learned as much as we did about right. <laughs> about Kevin Spacey and the allegations against him. So, yeah, it was just like as soon as he came on screen, it was like, ooh, <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> this guy. <laughs> Because he's not the first character that gets introduced, so uh, it took some adjustment. I don't think I've seen a, a Kevin Spacey movie oh, wow. since uh, since yeah the I don't know. Have you guys? I've seen, no. Does the does the video he released count? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's the thing. I was yeah, I we, I was watching it with my wife. She's like, oh god, you remember? <laughs> like all these memories were flooding. Was it back. an apron? Oh, Why was he in an apron? He made. Like, it's so weird. Yeah, and he and it almost seems in this movie like it's all, like an alternative history for Kevin Spacey. Oh yeah, because watching the scenes where he is like, there's some sexual morality that's very dubious around his character and what he lets happen in this movie and then he like tries to make it right mm -hmm. which is like the complete opposite of what kevin space you know deny 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 so it kind of felt like just this kind of like this is the way it could have gone maybe like i don't know yeah and something about like some of the meta textual elements of this movie being that it's a movie about you know people who are fascinated or involved in like making movies something about that makes this sort of like line between fiction and reality and the stuff all of Kevin Spacey's stuff it makes it seem more permeable like there is a sort of like sense that he sort of he's almost like part of like the yeah, gritty, pulpy sort of underworld in a very real way that this movie sort of portrays. Yeah, especially, yeah, thinking, you know, to the way we we look at the, you know, have a superficial reading or of of movie stars and, and movie stardom, like thinking back to when this movie came out, like... I, me and all my friends just loved Kevin Spacey. Yeah. Like, he was in The Usual Seven. Suspects and The Ref. And right. So he was just... And he he hosted probably my favorite episode of SNL. Right. Uh, like, the, yeah, we just thought he was great. So, yeah, the fact that we've kind of come to understand that he, he may not have been all he was cracked up to be. I mean, even like... Uh, I don't know the extent to which, you know, we can legally label him besides you know mentioning that there are allegations against him because i don't know if anything has been proven in court but yeah don't sue us or kill us kevin spacey <laughs> yeah well that's the other thing is his accusers like keep mysteriously dying right like that's not no that's not great <laughs> <laughs> Get Guy Pierce on the case. Yeah, right. But also just yeah, the fact that like he's making those weird videos, like every everything nothing about it is uh salvageable <laughs> in terms of our modern perspective no, of Kevin no. Spacey. No. But let's talk about the actual movie because it's not the Kevin Spacey show. It no. is LA Confidential. It's Curtis Hansen's movie, the late great Curtis Hansen, mm -hmm. and there's a whole lot more to it, so let's just sort of get into it. I'll start with the beginning. Or should I say Danny DeVito will start? 
because he sort of sets the scene, and he is the writer of this pulpy magazine called Hush, Hush, Hush. That it was just Hush, Hush. Oh, sorry. <laughs> you added one too many hush. That's a different magazine. <laughs> it's, it's one magazine and one Gwyneth Paltrow movie. <laughs> but he's telling us all about the world that this movie is set in, the L.A. of the 40s. It's unseemly. There's Hollywood stars like Marilyn Monroe, all these other people. And then there's like, you know, stuff that the public isn't aware about, like illicit drugs and gay sex and all sorts of things that we accept as okay now. <laughs> well, it's, kind of, it's, it's the beginning of tabloid journalism. So, yeah, it seems like kind of kitschy and like a throwback, but it's also, you know, it's TMZ, basically. For mm-hmm. sure, for sure. And we have a whole bunch of cops that we are sort of following through this film. The first is Russell Crowe, and we first see him as he's staking out some guy. And the thing about his character is that he gets really angry whenever he sees women being mistreated or assaulted. And so at this scene, he sees a woman getting beaten by her husband, and he goes in there and kicks the shit out of the husband. So he, you know, he he has like a good heart good intentions but maybe you know a little bit rough around the edges and do you know who um the person who plays the uh the battered wife is no no it's friend of the podcast precious chong what yeah yeah i don't know that was was cool that's cool And she gets she gets a really good shot where her like her face is reacting to you know her husband getting the shit kicked out of him by Russell Crowe, and it's like it's really good. It's really good. So take a look at that. She and she's and she wishes him a merry Christmas too, which I love. Yeah, yeah it's perfect. And her husband, this is also pretty cool, is the uh, the big guy from Deadwood who has like the big brawl with uh, Swearingen's guy. Yeah, I recognize him. Yeah, the eye in that fight. Wait, oh. <laughs> The other guy, the guy who works for Major Dad, that guy? <laughs> yeah, that's right, <laughs> Major Dad. Because the guy who plays Dan, I just found out, is like the brother and there's something about right. Mary. yes. Yeah. yeah. Which I never realized, yeah. That guy's awesome, W. Earl Brown, I think. Oh, wow, you know his name. He's awesome. He, he is awesome, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But he's he is a real mm-hmm. chameleon. I didn't realize that that was the same guy. Yeah, he was all, he was in something else that I didn't recognize him in. Um, I'm trying to think of what it is now, but uh, <laughs> fuck, he's good. Anyway, yeah, we also have Guy Pierce. He is this sort of idealistic cop. He's on the cusp of promotion, and his boss, James Cromwell, sort of asks him what he wants to do, and he says he wants to be a detective, and Cromwell tells him that you know he should rethink it because he isn't willing to do the sort of bad things that need to be done to be a detective. I was thinking Detective Bureau. Edmund, you're a political animal. You have the eye for human weakness, but not the stomach. You're wrong, sir. Would you be willing to plant corroborative evidence on a suspect you knew to be guilty in order to ensure an indictment? Dudley, we've been over this. Yes or no, Edmund? No. Would you be willing to beat a confession out of a suspect you knew to be guilty? No. Would you be willing to shoot a hardened criminal in the back in order to offset the chance that some lawyer... No. Then, for the love of God, don't be a detective. And this is, like, the first sign that, like, this is 
a different world maybe than the one that we live in today, <laughs> though maybe not. It's a, it's a world where the cops are, like, not just corrupt, but, like, openly corrupt and like uh, openly rob. violent uh rob <laughs> pulling at the collar here yeah. yeah that's what i that's what i yeah i mean that yeah it, it is a movie like that is because uh, i was watching when <laughs> i i hadn't seen it in a few years so like watching any movie or show about police now like you wonder if this is going if this will be you know like a piece of police propaganda or you know something that that you didn't notice when you were younger but it does make the police uh, seem <laughs> very terrible and awful and uh like oh, yeah. an organization that should not exist uh i mean they're just like relentlessly brutal and hateful and corrupt throughout this entire movie and like even our our heroes are you know flawed well we'll get into that you keep going yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And then the third, the aforementioned Kevin Spacey, who's playing Jack Vincennes, he is this sort of celebrity cop. He is the consultant on a dragnet type show, which is very popular. And so he has a sort of relationship with the Danny DeVito character where Danny DeVito will call him up with tips and then he'll go and get the bus. And then Danny DeVito will do the big story making Jack the hero. So he is a slimy individual from the get-go it all sort of like starts with like this shootout at this diner or this murder at this diner that guy pierce gets the call to investigate so he goes down there and he sees there's a body oh first things first (laughs) (laughs) it's a very complicated story i don't know if you're going to be able to no i don't think i am it's very labyrinthine which i think means it's as tight as david bowie's pants uh (laughs) but one thing that i thought was important to mention (laughs) wait did you write that down before that (laughs) that's crazy maybe i like it One thing that I want to mention is, yeah, there's this huge brawl that the police get involved in on Christmas night. It's the Christmas party, and all the cops are getting drunk upstairs. And basically, these cops bring in some Mexican guys that are rumored to have hurt another police officer. And all these cops come down from the Christmas party intending to get a piece of these guys. And Guy Pierce is the only one who wants to stop it. He's, like, trying to get trying to stop it but he's just one cop there's really nothing that he can do and they all sort of get past him and russell crowe at first is sort of not going to get involved but then one of the mexican guys says something mean to him so he punches the guy out so (laughs) there goes mr good guy but this is a huge scandal they end up calling it bloody christmas and as a result jack loses his tv gig for a couple months when he's sent back to narcotics and russell crowe I don't think he gets in so much trouble, but his partner, he gets... Well, he gets sent- suspended. He right. Gets suspended. And his and partner... I'll, yeah, and I, I do want to say quickly that it, that was based on a real event. Yes. Bloody Christmas. I was going to say that. It was a real event. It actually happened. It's crazy, but uh, yeah, I was surprised, but then, yes, also not surprised at uh, that little piece of history. But yeah, as a result, Jack loses his gig and he gets busted down and everything gets sort of shuffled up. And then there's the shootout at the diner. And it just happens that Russell Crowe's partner happens to be one of the victims at this diner. Guy Pierce goes up and he finds like a whole pile of bodies, like nine bodies or so. And um, 
So it's a big deal. And so they've got to figure out who killed all these people. Now, this being L.A. in the 40s, 50s. the first person that's going to get uh, in the 50s? Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, that's Anytime totally really different. Rough. That's totally different. <laughs> Anytime, really. Basically, they're going to blame some black kids. So they find some black kids, and uh, those are the people that they blame. But it turns out that there's more to the story. And actually, like, they're not innocent either. They've like kidnapped a woman and are holding her hostage, and that becomes mm-hmm. a whole thing. There's so much stuff in this movie. Like, it's very full of just blood and guts and horribleness. It really doesn't stop. Like, it doesn't let up. Like, it, after the bloody Christmas, it just goes and goes and goes. They're, they're either interrogating someone or shooting guns or getting shot at. It's, mm-hmm. uh, it's so fast-paced for, like, kind of this, this throwback film noir movie. Yeah. yeah. And initially, Russell Crowe and... Guy Pierce, they don't get along because Pierce got his buddy fired, so he doesn't like him. Mm-hmm. And his buddy was killed at the Night Owl. That's right. Which is also a piece of it. It is kind of like, a, I, I, it does a, a familiar story well in terms of the, <laughs> the fact that it, in a lot of ways it's like a buddy cop mm-hmm. movie. Like it takes these two guys who are like the opposite cops. And at the beginning of the movie, you say to yourself, there's no way these guys are ever going to be friends at the end of this Mm-mm. movie. And then it takes you through a story that ultimately lands uh, an ending where they're friends. And it's a simple setup. It's a, 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 like I said, a familiar one, but it just does it so well. Like they just hate each other so much at this beginning of this movie. Yeah. Like I've seen it a hundred times and even watching it now, like I feel like, oh man, they're... They're never going to be friends. Like, well, <laughs> and you get like you get three quarters of the way through the movie, and one of them does something kind of, you know, so bad to the other that you're like, well, if there was ever going to be a chance at friendship, it's never going to happen now. It does that so well, and that's kind of the game it plays throughout the whole thing is making them hate each other so much. It also does yeah. all these little things so well, like when Bud goes to interview the first kind of in this movie there are women that have gone to LA to become actresses and turned up prostitutes and they get uh, sex worker yes blame. okay sex, sex worker. worker and they get uh, it's not the 50s anymore <laughs> <laughs> don't be a swerve um, and they get plastic surgery to resemble actresses which was also a real thing oh, oh my god. god I didn't know that a, a rumored Jesus, real thing that's yeah, yeah. depressing that doesn't surprise me and he goes to talk to the Veronica Lake look alike and in it could have just been a scene where he like knocks on the door and she opens up the door and they have a conversation but he catches her with someone in the midst of something and the guy tries to act real tough for her it's just a beautiful little scene and one small part for this other actor it just but it adds so much to the context and the story and the world of of the film it's just so well written is it the cop Miss Bracken, I'm Officer White. I've been expecting you, just not this soon. Pierce called. He told me what happened to Sue. Everything all right, doll? You want me to get rid of him? Hit the road, pal. <laughs> Maybe I will. Maybe I won't. LAPD shitbird, get the fuck out of here. Or I'll call your wife to come get you. Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, that's I, I think 
what's really great about like the really best noir stuff is that it shows the world and it's so like great at slicing out just like a little bit of that world and like giving you a tiny bit of information that illuminates like the larger darker picture and this movie does that like super well you know it's funny i don't even really think of this as a noir Mm -hmm. no in a lot of ways no there's something about it that's like well i mean we can talk about this more later but like aesthetically curtis hansen said he was purposefully not going the noir route his his intention was to not do a noir stylistically and to make the movie feel as like real and as like present and modern as possible to kind of like to not revel in that nostalgia and not have like like my favorite noir sure there are a lot of like police procedurals and things at the time and like hyper realist movies that are 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 considered noirs but i think the thing we tend to think of in film noir like the the sort of hallmarks are of noir do involve the the exaggerated lighting and the kind of like surreal storytelling sure. and this is very like deliberate and specific and a lot of the movies in in daylight i i don't know this just it just feels like something different to me if it, it feels so like i from what i understand of james elroy and i haven't read a lot of his stuff but i think like he actually does so much research and like you know exhaustively goes through newspaper articles and and police cases and actually go went out to the, you know retirement homes and talked to these guys who were cops back in the 40s and 50s and really tries to like recreate that time in in a way that makes the story feel like something else it it kind of brings that time to life in a way that even the noir movies at the time weren't necessarily uh capturing in a way like even the neo noirs that were coming out in like the 80s and 90s uh never did because they were kind of trying to do their own cool you know stylish thing so i don't know this movie just feels like something different to me and i'm a big fan of film noir and and i've watched a lot of them and and this just feels it it feels more like a like an epic crime drama or something and it's it's some it's something else and it's unique and and that's a good thing but uh but yeah i i i sometimes push back against labeling it as a noir just because i feel like it it uh is deliberately kind of uh uh going against uh, the grain of some of the more uh familiar noir tropes if that makes sense yeah, I think that those are good points. I think in terms of it, sort of the noir things that sort of stand out to me are like the protagonist who is sort of uh, flawed or, you know, has a strong sense of morals, but also like is, you know, strongly flawed. There's the colorful characters. There's the sort of interest in sort of vice or sin or that sort of thing. Like there's all the of those. Oh, yeah, yeah. The voiceover. Like I all of that was, stuff. But the voiceover is Danny DeVito's. Yeah. And it's I think not it even, kind of... it's not the detective. Is Matilda noir? <laughs> <laughs> I think it was kind of written as a noir, but directed against it, which kind of adds a cool tension to this movie and makes it something more than the genre itself. Yeah, I would say, you know, I think one thing, I couldn't find anyone like writing about this in any uh, any of the stuff I read about the film, but like this movie also owes a lot to horror. I think like there's a lot of scenes that play that are scary. Like I remember being scared by parts of this movie when I was a kid and in such a way that I still kind of, you know, 
have that apprehension in a few parts. And there's, there's kind of three key scenes with the three main characters where starting with the night owl scene where they're alone and they're at a crime scene and they're discovering dead bodies. It, it happens with, uh, to skip ahead a little bit, it happens with the, with Guy Pierce of the night owl scene. It happens with, uh, Russell Crowe in the, uh, under the porch where he finds the dead mm. body there. And it happens with, uh, Kevin Spacey in the motel room at the end. Mm-hmm. Like they're, they're very creepy scenes where you're just following this character alone as they examine the space and, and, you know, find something horrifying at the end. Yeah. And, and I, I think there's something really powerful to the way the movie doesn't shy away from, from the horror of that and the fear of that. And especially because, you know, it's not glamorizing these guys or making these guys seem like, you know, macho, tough guy, you know, noir heroes. It's, you know, it's putting you in their shoes. It's showing you that they're, they're terrified too. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. That's yeah. neat. Yeah. And there is uh, the sort of uh, the person that Kevin Spacey sort of finds is an actor that he actually busted earlier in the movie for the uh, terrible, terrible crime. I didn't even know this was a crime. Uh, a marijuana possession. That's not a thing, <laughs> is it? <laughs> not in Canada, Rob. You're all right. You're all right. <laughs> but uh, and eventually this guy gets sort of blackmailed by Danny DeVito into sleeping with a politician or a district attorney or something like that in order to blackmail him. And he doesn't want to do it, but eventually does. Big V. How fitting. Jackie. Any tissue affected? Good to see you back, Boychik. How the hang it, Sid? Down around my ankles. <laughs> you tight with the DA, Jackie? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He tried to throw me off the force last Christmas as a little joke. How about some payback, big time? Plus the usual $50 donation to the Jack Vincennes Retirement Fund. Did you know the DA was a swish? No kidding. Remember Matt Reynolds, Christmas Eve, the movie premiere pot bust? He just got off the honor farm. What's he doing here? Reynolds is AC Doocy, not to mention broke. I'm getting him to fuck the DA for 100 bucks. That's twice the 50 you got for wrecking his career. Kevin Spacey, after a moment of conscience, I should say his character, uh, he uh, he Jack. he goes to the actor's hotel room to tell him he doesn't have to do it and finds him dead. And so then all of a sudden this sort of slimy celebrity cop is invested in the mystery. And that's the sort of thing that he wants to solve. So he ends up teaming up with Russell Crowe, um, I think, or, or the other one. I can't remember. One of them. For sure. Well, he's already kind of working with uh, Ed Exley in the beginning. And what, what I do like about it, I, I know, you know, I haven't read the book, but I know they've lopped out a lot of the storylines from the book. But what I like about the movie is you've kind of gotten all the characters working on the same mystery, but from different angles. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, like Russell Crowe kind of has an in because he knows his partner was secretly seeing the woman who was a sex worker working with the Kim Basinger character. Mm-hmm. And we should maybe just talk a minute minute about Kim Basinger because she won an Oscar for this part. She's great. Yeah. I mean, one thing that always bothered me is she doesn't really look like Veronica Lake. (laughs) (laughs) No. I mean, I don't know what Veronica Lake looks like, but even I know she doesn't look like Veronica Lake. She's also not on screen that much. Like, in total minutes in this movie, she's it's got to be very 
low. Like oh, yeah. Danny DeVito might have more screen time than her. Yeah. And I wonder what the, like, maybe a good trivia question for those that they're making trivia about movies, but like, That's what me. is the lowest number of minutes someone has won an Oscar for in a movie? Because she, it's very, it's a very low number in this movie. Well, it's more than like Judy Dench. Who won for Shakespeare in Love? Yeah. Right. She was yeah. barely in that thing. Yeah. <laughs> but also, uh, yeah, she's great. I, I think I, I can't remember what the last thing I saw her in was, but I do think she's an undervalued actress because she's great and like fantastic in this. I was rewatching the original Batman recently. Oh, yeah, she's great in that. She's so good in that, and she's not only good in that; like she is kind of the centerpiece of the movie. She kind of holds the whole thing together because we don't even learn Batman's origin story except for through her, you know? Yeah. And and she also seems very like grounded and real in that movie. Yeah, I, I just uh yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna watch some more Kim Basinger movies, I think. Well, one movie that you can watch is Curtis Hansen's Eight Mile, which she is also in. Uh, I've actually never seen Eight Mile. <laughs> you should it's, pretty it's good. great. Yeah. Okay. I liked Eight Mile a lot. Well, maybe we should do it on the podcast to force you to do it. We should do it it's on the podcast. It's kind of a good November movie, actually. Now I'm thinking about it. It's like dark and well, dreary. Let's talk about, uh, let's talk about Kurt, Curtis Hansen for a minute because he also he, he kind of he's kind of a journeyman director because he does a lot of like different types of mm-hmm. films. But I, I know a movie that I think you like a lot too, Blaine. That he did after this is Wonder Boys, right? Yeah, yeah, I like Wonder, Wonder Boys. Is great. I love Wonder It's Boys. a funny movie. Yeah. It's yeah. That's a classic. Yeah. Um, he's great. Yeah. And also, speaking of Christmas movies, he wrote one of my favorite sort of crime thriller Christmas movies. And that's The Silent Partner with Elliot Gould and Christopher Plummer. Have you guys seen that? He wrote that? Yeah. Yeah. I, I watched it after your recommendation. Oh, good. It was, it's an amazing movie. It's great. Yeah. Yeah. He wrote wow. that. He must have been young because it was in the late 70s, but... Yeah, and it takes place all around Toronto and the Eaton Center and stuff. Right, yeah. right. Neat. Yeah. Great. That's cool. <laughs> now I'm in. Now I'm in. Yeah, well, so the the big thing, wrapping it all up, Jack goes to see James Cromwell to tell him about, you know, the sort of stuff that he's been investigating. And Cromwell says, that'll do, pig. <laughs> and then he and then he invents warp speed. <laughs> I was so surprised to see James Cromwell turn because, yeah, I know he wasn't so great in Star Trek after all, but uh, he's usually like a prince or something. I mean, I guess Prince Philip isn't that great either. But well, this was like two years after Babe. Like, I wonder if that was part of the you know decision making right. to like yeah, to get cast someone innocent the... in there. Yeah, like you you don't see that coming, and it's played again talking about like the scenes that are legitimately horrifying in this movie. Like, that scene is almost a jump scare mm-hmm. where well, you realize he's corrupt and, and he kills Kevin Spacey. And it's and it's terrifying to watch. Like, the camera doesn't pull away. It's like a one-shot after that, watching Kevin Spacey die. And it's it's slow and it's agonizing. Yeah. And uh, it's, it's a... I mean, I know that he's a, 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 maybe... Uh, allegedly a horrible human being, but it's a great performance in that it scene. Is. It is a really oh, great yeah, performance. Yeah, yeah. we can we can acknowledge that he is a great actor and a terrible person, yeah. and we will enjoy all of his movies a lot more whenever he dies. <laughs> <laughs> well, we rewatchability curse. It could be. It could be soon. <laughs> right, hey, James Cromwell, get on it. Hey, man. last week we talked about the curse. Right, we talked about the curse and how people die, and then we mentioned Double Jeopardy. Do you think we killed Alex Trebek? 
Oh, no. No, 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 I don't think so. No. I don't think so. No, no. I don't want that on my hands. Uh, but that the, that scene, just to talk about that scene for another minute, I, I, talking again about like the reality of this movie, the fact that like they wanted to go shoot in these real places and make it feel as as real as possible. There's something about, and I know they're also commenting on the, the like post war LA boom, where like they built all these kind of bungalows all over LA, and you know even sort of people with modest incomes could buy these. Uh, these houses that were just kind of sprawling throughout throughout the city. But th- there is something about that space where the murder takes place that just feels so real to me. Like they obviously, I don't know if it's a set or not, but it feels like they just went into one of those homes and shot in this very cramped kitchen. Mm-hmm. Like, I feel like I've been in that kitchen. You and, know what and, I mean? Like, Yeah. And you know what it is? It's the way he shot it too. Because I think a lot of people, when they, like even the Queen's Gambit, uh, you know, uh, it's it's beautifully set design and everything, but they show you everything. They're like, this is the clock on the wall that we got from the storeroom, and we <laughs> paid good money for that, and so we're going to show it. This just kind of like, it's, everything is there, and it's and he doesn't need to show all, all the set dressing. It's, it's just lived in. It's there. And I, I love that about it. Well, that's what he said. I was watching an interview with him and he was saying, uh, you know, like we want to get all the period detail right. We want everything to be accurate, but we're not going to like stop to linger on. Yeah, we're not. This is not going to be about nostalgia. It's not going to be about the cars or the restaurants or anything like those will all be, you know, there. But, you know, it's going to be about the characters and the story. Yeah. And it's kind of the opposite of like something like Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which is, you know. All about right. that stuff. It's it's mostly about the cars and the restaurants <laughs> and the dishes and, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, well, so the thing that Jack manages to, to do with his last dying breath is he gives a clue to Guy Pierce as a name, which is Ro- Roly Tomasi? Rolo Rolo Tomasi. Tomasi. Yeah, Rolo Tomasi. like the Rolo yeah. candy bar. I think... Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's I the think candy he was just bar hungry for <laughs> magnet. <laughs> He's having a blood sugar thing. But uh, that that tells Guy Pierce that James Cromwell that something's up, and so he knows to investigate. Eventually, they sort of figure it all out, and Russell Crowe and Pierce get sort of lured to the house where they have a big shootout with the with everybody. And this is a great shootout. There's a bunch of great moments in this, like the moment where Russell Crowe goes under the floorboards to shoot out somebody's legs from under the porch. Mm-hmm. And then also shooting out through the hole uh, at the other guy, just as Guy Pierce is about to get uh, whacked. Well, and it's it's just great because he goes under the porch earlier in the movie, so he like yeah he's primed himself for that thought to like oh I could probably shoot someone from under here, like it just it's all so organic. It, it, it like these writers are amazing. Yeah, um, and then yeah. Th- at the end they get James Cromwell and. You know, he he seems to have shot Russell Crowe, but Guy Pierce manages to get him hostage with a shotgun, and he's going to arrest him. They go outside, and all the police cars are sort of pulling in with their sirens blaring, and he see it seems like he's won, like he's managed to connive his way into doing this. He says, like, oh, don't worry, you'll make a good detective master, whatever the head detective boss is he's gonna give him a promotion you know instead of you know for not turning him in they're gonna spin the story and everything will be okay and he'll get some sort of promotion but 
at the last minute. Instead, he shoots him in the back. And then he holds up his police badge so that they know that he's a cop and don't shoot the him. Yeah, because that's, that's when he shoots him, when James Cromwell's like, hold up your badge so you know <laughs> they'll know you're police. Yeah, or, yeah. You know, I don't think my accent no. is much better than his. But <laughs> it's about the same. It's about the same. You could have been in this movie. But that's when he's just like, fuck you, and shoots yeah. him in the back. But it's, it's also great. like it's watching good. it this time, because I, I, I remembered that he, you know, doesn't get caught for it. And just watching Guy Pierce like, think through it and like be like, I can probably kill this guy and get away with it, and I probably should because he's the guy that does that all the time. And then he proves himself right later on, like yeah. in the next scene. And I also yeah. <laughs> didn't remember Russell Crowe getting shot in the face. Oh, my God. So when <laughs> yeah. he did, I was like, but I remembered him living. Oh, my God. He's totally dead. You can't come back from that. So I thought yeah. that was a pretty. It was through the cheek. Yeah. It was in the cheek. Anyway, yeah. I thought that was pretty cool. He can probably stick his tongue through there now. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah, he just won't be starting any shitty rock bands anytime soon. <laughs> Every time he yeah. tries to sing, he whistles out his cheek. Oh, I mean, the one thing I forgot to talk about, which I think was important about his character, was the point where after he finds out that Guy Pierce slept with Kim Bassinger, he punches her in the face. Yeah, that's that was awful. It was awful to see, but in in the story of it. He like becomes the abuser that he hates. Right? Yeah, I know. It's, it was such, such like a powerful moment, yeah. but also like so awful, just like awful. Watch. Yeah, yeah. Because we did mention like his dad like murdered his mom, and he had to watch. And uh, there's so much we haven't talked about. Yeah, it's yeah. it's a very rich. There's film. so much to this movie. We didn't even mention David Strathairn as the Who? like David no, David Strathairn. As Pierce Patchett, the like uh, pornographer, the the millionaire pornographer, he's really good too. He's, he's so good. Uh, he, I mean, he's always good. But this was probably like before I knew who he was. Who was also in another Curtis Hanson movie that I've always wanted to do on the podcast, The River Wild. Mm. You guys remember that movie? Never seen it. No. Okay. <laughs> well, we should watch this sometime. Let's do it because right. it's a kind of a fun movie. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so that's that's the plot of. L.A. Confidential, we have some trivia. Kind of. And behind the scenes right after this break. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome back to Rewatchability. We are talking about LA Confidential, and I'm going to interrogate the shit out of both of you, and you better watch out because I am the bad cop and the worst cop. That's right. <laughs> I am. I'm not very good at my job. That's what I mean. I, I lose my papers. I, uh, I I can't keep track of things. I don't take notes. I'm a terrible officer. Um, you could be worse. Just I guess I could be. I guess I could be. Yeah. I take you if over most of the cops that I've heard about. More incompetence, less maliciousness. How about that? Yeah. Okay. So. 
these are these are some hard boiled questions for you. I think they're some toughies. So uh, you know, <laughs> hard boiled, aka real toughies. <laughs> okay, so this one's this one's tricky. Okay, so which film from the year two thousand does author James Elroy have a cameo in? Ooh. Oh. Oh, like early two thousands. I feel yeah. like I know this. The year two thousand. Cool. Was that? Was that? Uh... <laughs> no. Give us a clue. Okay, we've mentioned it, and it's by the same director. <laughs> Wonder Boys. Wonder Boys. Oh, it is one. It is Wonder Boys. Yeah, he's like in the audience at, as in the reading Good or clue. something. Yeah, that's clue. right. That's yeah. right. I mean, I I didn't know how to give you a clue without giving it away. Yeah, uh, you know, I was going to say literary, but I feel like that would also give it away. You know. Hmm. But uh, that was good. You guys still got it. And uh, yeah. Yeah, kind of. Kind of. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of like detectives over here. You're kind of like detectives. Yeah. And we we were talking earlier about the adaptations of his books. And there haven't been that many great ones other than this one. Uh, We mentioned The Black Dahlia with James Hartnett. I saw that in the theater and I snuck in a box of wine (laughs) and uh, (laughs) I kind of passed out. But then... (laughs) But then it's the only way to watch Jesus. that movie, by the way, <laughs> just just hearing the cardboard rip, someone being like, "What is that a box?" <laughs> but then, happy anniversary, Rob. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> but then there was a problem with the projector, and the movie stopped. So I got a uh, like a coupon to go see a different one, and I did not see the end of the Black Dahlia. <laughs> <laughs> so it was a win-win. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, there were some other adaptations of of his movies. I don't have them in front his of books. Me. Yeah, of his books. Do you have another <laughs> trivia question? No. Can you tell us what what else you've brought into theaters to to imbibe? <laughs> oh, Do you have a box of wine right now. <laughs> no, I well, I made I made a uh, my seasonal favorite drink in the in the colder months is. The Irish hot chocolate, which is about as mm. Irish as uh, James Cromwell, <laughs> James Cromwell's character, <laughs> aka it's just powdered hot chocolate with Irish whiskey in it. But it you does know, the job of, well, boy. Speaking of drinking in movie theaters, I remember in high school I had a friend who would uh, like go to like the cheap uh, Eaton Center theaters, where it's like two dollars a movie, and he'd go there and drink with his friends. But he just went there as like a place to drink, and I remember him telling me that he went to go see Stepmom <laughs> drink. I was like, "What? Why would you go see Stepmom?" He's like, "To drink." I was like, "Drink at the park." What? Yeah, why like are you watching gentleman. Stepmom? <laughs> I don't know. Anyways, continue. Okay, okay. So one of the most memorable moments in this film is when Guy Pierce's character goes to talk to this dude and he sees this woman who is supposed to look like Lana Turner and he sort of says all this stuff about how even if she looks like Lana Turner she's still a bad word that means sex worker but it turns out that it's actually Lana Turner and it's funny because it plays with you know expectations and reality and the simulacrum and uh, all of that stuff it's an Ouroboros it's a snake (laughs) whatever but which Lana Turner movie 
appears in this film. Oh. Oh, my God. Postman always rings twice. No. Blaine, are you looking on IMDb? I am. I'm looking at Lana Turner movies. Just to that's like... not. That's not how that works. No, I, I'm. I'm, I'm not trying to think of which one was in this, but uh... I don't know that many Lana Turner movies. Well, that's on you. Man. Was it the? Uh... Here, let me tell you. It's the Bad and the Beautiful, which is the. I was going to say the Bad and the Beautiful, and then I was like, "Is that Lana Turner? I don't know." Fuck. It is. It is. Why didn't I say that? I I would have looked smart, and then if I was wrong, I could have asked you to cut it out. <laughs> <laughs> well, whenever you ask me to cut things out, that doesn't happen. But uh, oh, yeah, bad and in that case, I have some apologies. <laughs> <to make. laughs> yeah, so yeah, like, bad and the beautiful yeah. Lana Turner, Kirk Douglas, Kirk Douglas, right? Yeah, Walter Pigeon, Dick Powell, all sorts of old timey names. <laughs> They're all there. So, what is that a movie? Is that like the movie they go see? It uh, is. On the date with uh, Russell Crowe and Kim Basinger? Nice. It is, yes. Mm. Yeah. So, yeah, I think you see it on the marquee or something. That's probably why. You do. Back in my mind. You do. Okay, <laughs> next question. Okay, so this one, this one's a real toughie. Watch here. out. Uh, okay. Let's move on. <laughs> so writer Brian Hageland. My, my lawyer's busy trying to fight election fraud in <laughs> Pennsylvania right now. <laughs> <laughs> Writer Brian Hegland reunited with Russell Crowe for what 2010 film? Oh, well, this isn't the. All right. Uh, Come on. <sighs> Jam's just slowly deflating. Okay, I'll, I'll, I'll give you. I'll give you a hint. It's it's ridiculous. <laughs> That does not narrow down the <laughs> Russell Crowe canon. <laughs> what I, Russell Crowe movies were? Was, yeah. That was 10 years ago. What was I doing 10 years ago? This podcast. Instead of watching a ridiculous Russell Crowe. Oh, yeah. No, no. You were, no, podcast. it was probably a twinkle uh, in your eye. It, Russell Crowe, I will say... No, not a beautiful mind because no. that was much before that. Yeah, I, I can't, I can't think, th- of, any, I can't yeah. think of any Russell Crowe movies. He's, he's not well, someone I think about a lot. Wait, okay, no, like, give me another minute. Give me another minute. <laughs> We're not going to cut out the dead air. You know, it's funny because I was thinking about, <laughs> you know, I've I've talked a lot of shit online about his movie Unhinged. <laughs> and been like, who wants to go see like Russell Crowe, like this famous, you know, like. <laughs> maniac like play this uh you know ultra violent guy with anger management issues but then i watched like a variation on that character in ally confidential and it's like <laughs> one of my favorite movies yeah i can't i can't think but, of uh i can't think of any Russell okay. Crowe. i can think of like the big ones that it wouldn't be like lay Miz or something but it's it not. is a big one i think it's not lay oh, Miz. Okay. it is robin hood oh brian hegland was oh fuck the yeah. writer oh, i saw robin that hood yeah so, I saw them in the theater, mm-hmm. and it was ridiculous. Yeah, I didn't see it, but I remember you saying it was ridiculous, so I felt like I could roll with that. But yeah, he he wrote that movie, and he he's that, written and directed a bunch of movies that are uh, pretty interesting. Like he actually directed The Knight's Tale, Heath Ledger, that okay. classic. 
Okay. That was a good mm-hmm. one, uh, from what I remember, and uh, lots of other stuff as well. But so, I mean, this movie it was a sort of uh, labor of love for Curtis Hansen because he read James Elroy's novel and he really didn't like the characters. He found himself like really loathing the characters, but he continued reading, and then he found himself being really sympathetic to them or, or not being able to pull away anyway. And so he liked that sort of cognitive dissonance that the novel sort of uh, put out there, which is sort of a little bit different than a lot of uh, other books. I think we, in most media, we try to make the protagonist so likable. And that's one of the things that he tried to emulate with the casting of the film. So at the time, Guy Pierce, Russell Crowe, neither of them were big stars. They were both just actors from Australia. Guy Pierce had done Priscilla, Queen of the Desert, though Curtis Hansen says that though he, he liked Guy Pierce's audition, he didn't want to see him in Priscilla, Queen of the Desert. <laughs> he didn't want, his, he didn't want his, uh, his view of Guy Pierce to be colored by anything in that movie. <laughs> Weird. You know, I was, I was watching the, uh, some of the behind-the-scenes stuff on the DVD and Curtis Hansen was saying when they were trying to get the movie made, like he would pitch it to studios and it was like, you know, it's the story of like these three guys mostly, you know, trying to solve this case. And the studios were like, okay, well like just cut out the other two guys and make it be about Bud White and we'll get a big star to play Bud White. And he'd be like, no, well, it's really important. Let me tell you about like how important Ed Exley is. And, you know, he's this really principled guy, but you know, the case that made it was like, okay, we'll make it the movie about Ed Exley. And, you know, we'll get rid of Bud White and the other guy and we'll get a big star to play Ed Exley. (laughs) So uh, you can see why it was a hard movie to, uh, to sell. Yeah, absolutely. And even to invest, even like the three storylines that it sort of focuses on, this is cut down from about eight storylines in the book. So there's a lot of material that doesn't get featured here. And it, it, it's part of that, like like you were saying, Blaine, there's like, was it like four or five books, mm-hmm. four books that Elroy wrote that are kind of occupy the same universe. Yeah. Like I read The Black Dahlia and that's got characters. Like I think mm-hmm. Buzz Meeks is in that. And like, so he, he kind of created this world of, of, of the time. The that, jazz quartet or that, something? Uh, that gets referenced. White jazz. Oh, White, White jazz. jazz is one of the books. Yeah. Uh, and I, I've never read LA Confidential. Because partly because I love the movie so much, I don't want to modify that. Even though I'm sure the book's, mm-hmm. amazing. I mean, this watching yeah. it again made me want to read the book, especially because I just Black Dahlia was so bad, and I think other interpretations of Elroy's works have really had to pick and choose, and this did it in such a beautiful way. Like it feels like a complete story unto itself, whereas the Black Dahlia felt like it was leaking something. Like, it just wasn't full. <laughs> it wasn't a good story. Um, so, yeah, it made me want to read yeah. the, the quartet. Yeah. Well, the movie cost $33 million to make. And, you know, Curtis Hansen, he felt really strongly about it. So he actually submitted it to Khan, uh, sort of behind the studio's back, which was a big risk because, you know, Khan doesn't really like – big commercial Hollywood films, but it was really well-received, and uh, that gave it sort of part of the push that sort of helped it 
become so successful because it made a total of $126 million, which in 1997 was exceptionally good for a movie like this and was nominated for nine Oscar nominations, of which it won two including the Kim Bassinger. But it was also nominated for Best Picture, though it lost to... Was this the Titanic year? Yeah. Yeah, it was the Titanic year. So, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, the Titanic, they took all the things from... You know, it's it's, it's a Titanic, you know. it's. uh... This was probably the year where, like, when I was a kid and getting into movies and, like, you know, you learn what movies are nominated for Best Picture at the Oscars or what won Best Picture, and you kind of, like, attach an acclaim to that. Yeah. This was the year, I think, where that broke for me, (laughs) like, when I realized, like, oh, this whole thing is full of shit. Like, (laughs) that movie was clearly better than Titanic, in my opinion, and, uh, and these awards are essentially meaningless, but... Which is an important realization to come to, but uh, yeah, for me this was this was that moment where like that you know it was my clear yeah. favorite, and it did not get the acknowledgement it deserved, in my opinion. And there were other good movies that year too. It was a good year for movies. I was looking at some of the other ones uh, that came out. Yeah, yeah, ninety seven. Yeah. Um, so th- there are a lot of differences in the book and the movie. Like we said, like for example. The Jack Vincennes character in the book is sometimes called Trash Can Jack, and he's called this in the book because he dumped Charlie Parker in a garbage can. Jazz great Charlie Parker. (laughs) (laughs) Which I don't know if that's something that actually historically happened, but I wouldn't be surprised, like, hearing all these stories about, you know, how, like, jazz greats and people were mistreated by uh, the police and now people in general were uh, mistreated by the police also the Inez Soto who is the woman who is uh, sort of held captive she has a bigger role in the book and in a very what sounds kind of gross to me uh, becomes the subject of the love triangle between Exley and Russell Crowe's character as opposed to the Kim Basinger character in the movie. So they hmm. changed that, and I'm okay oh, with that. that's weird. <laughs> um, also, the Rolo Tomasi thing, that was not in the book. Uh, that piece of... Oh. Yeah, I mean, that, that seems like a particularly brilliant piece of writing, but that is an invention of Hanson and the other screenwriter, which is interesting. Nice. It's so great. That's, you know, there's a few moments in this movie that are just like all-time movie moments that have just stuck with me and will continue to stick with me. One of them is the moment where James Cromwell comes up to Guy Pierce and says, hey, can you check on the name Rolo Tomasi? Which is just something that is a name that Guy Pierce made up and said to Kevin Spacey. And immediately he knows. Yeah. The truth of what happened. And the look in his face where he, like, his eyes widen and then he dials it back so he doesn't, like, tip his hand. So good. It's just so good. Like, the way it's directed, the way it's acted. I, amazing. Yeah, so I, I'm surprised. I didn't know that. That's great. Mm-hmm. It, was, it was for the movie. Yeah. I mean, Guy Pierce, he's an amazing actor. I think he's, like, one of the greatest actors that sort of works in Hollywood regularly. And, yeah, he doesn't, like, you know, always star in the movies. But when he shows up, he's, like committed like 1,000% to being Guy Pierce, And yeah, I really love him in this movie. He's great. I mean, this movie was hugely acclaimed. It has almost a perfect record. Like, 
It's so critically acclaimed, it has a 99% on Rotten Tomatoes. Wow. Yeah. Who was the one person that was just like, fuck this movie? Well, <laughs> okay. <yeah>. Well, <laughs> I looked it up because, yes, 113 out of 114 people gave L.A. Confidential fresh. The other critic took a whole box of wine to the theater while watching this movie. <laughs> hey, there's nothing wrong with that. <laughs> <laughs> so the sole dissenter was Dwight Garner writing for Salon, and he's sort of mostly a literary critic. So wait, Salon dot com, Salon dot com. So he was. And what's his name? Dwight Dwight Garner. Don't harass him. <laughs> no witch hunting, KJM. <laughs> nah, no, no, <laughs> but yeah, he was. He's usually a, a literary critic, so he was sort of writing off of his beat. And I sort of looked to see like. I mean, this was 1997. A lot of time has changed. Maybe Dwight has had something to say about this or, you know, has like a recanted. Yeah. Or maybe he's been, I don't know, murdered by L.A. Confidential fans. We just don't know. But I, I, did, I did look it up, and I did find an interview where he talks about it. So <laughs> the interviewer asked him, have you been tempted to write more TV or movie criticism and he says, uh, not really. He says, at Salon, they let me write a few movie reviews. I still get bitter emails from people who can't believe I'm the hoser who ruined the perfect critical score on Rotten Tomatoes or some movie website of L.A. Confidential because I semi-panned it 15 years ago on Salon. They are genuinely aggrieved. They are coming to my house to fling DVDs at my head. I now like that movie. What was I thinking? Oh, wow. yeah. Okay. So, you know, that happens. You know, it, it, funny enough, my a good example of this that I've experienced in, in my personal life was with Wonder Boys, where the local Toronto paper gave that movie one ooh, star whoa. when it came out. And then I went to see it and I loved it. And then I used to write movie reviews for my high school paper and I won an award for it. And part of the award was like a, a luncheon with the paper's critic. <laughs> uh, and... And when we were having lunch, I said, why did you give Wonder Boys one star? <laughs> and he, he said it was one of uh, the movies that he regrets, regretted you know, giving that harsh an appraisal to. Because, I mean, critics are people. And like, sometimes yeah. you see the movie at the wrong time or the wrong day. I remember when I was reviewing movies later, I went to a screening. You know, a lot of the critic screenings are in the morning. I remember I went to a movie... And I just hadn't eaten breakfast. I was just hungry through the whole thing. And then I gave it a bad review. And everyone else I knew loved the movie. And I thought, well, maybe I just should have eaten a muffin. And I would have liked the movie. You know, like stuff like that happens. So you never know. And that movie was Citizen Kane. <laughs> That's right. I am 104 years old. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think we should like start a petition or something to get Salon to change the review to get LA Confidential its perfect 100% Rotten Tomato score. Because the guy, as far as I'm yes. concerned, has recanted. There's evidence on file. I think if we start like an email campaign, now that the presidency is safe, we have to waste <laughs> our activism on something else. Come on. You, you yes. have time. If there's you one have money, cause, it, we yeah. should get behind. Yeah. We should put all of yeah. our energy no. into this, guys. We can Not change the, the Wait, wait, wait. No, wait, wait. This. Let's do the Georgia Senate thing first. And then after that, 
we get this 100% yeah, Rotten exactly. Tomatoes. Screw climate change. This Rotten Tomatoes thing. <laughs> That's all the behind the scenes I have. So let's go around. Let's do our thing. Let's do our little critical appraisal. Let's see if we can knock this down to 97% on Rotten Tomatoes. <laughs> I haven't eaten a muffin. Because I think so. that's where we're going for this, right? Like, I think we can all agree that this is an amateur, hackish oh. movie. Wait, before we get into okay. this, I do have one more bit of trivia thing. that We did not talk about the uh, TV adaptation. Oh, that's right. I forgot to mention that. There's actually – there was two TV adaptations. Yeah. I've never seen the more recent one, but I've seen the Kiefer Sutherland. Right. So that one came out – It is rough. When did that come out? I think in – it doesn't say. Yeah. Kiefer Sutherland plays Vincennes, and Eric Roberts plays the David Strathern character. Which is a real step down. Yeah. And then there was another one that... It's so bad. It's on, it's on the DVD, by the way. <laughs> yeah, that's right. It was included on the on Was it the just DVD. a pilot, or did it run for a season? Like, No, no, it was a pilot that oh, didn't okay. get picked up. It, it's so, like, it's clearly, you know, they didn't try to do anything in the movie. The The transitions are all, like, like p- the page peeling nice. <laughs> transition. Because they just got rough. it in iMovie, and they're like, yes. <laughs> and, oh, this. the guy who plays Exley is terrible. Oh, man, yeah, it's brutal. Wow. But yeah, then they made one, what, last year? Yeah, that's right. It was last year, and that one had Walter Goggins as Vincenze. Ooh, I like Walter Yeah, Walter that's Goggins. a step up, yeah. yeah. Um, And it also had, in a sort of link to the movie, there was one star, one person from... L.A. Confidential, the movie, who's also in that pilot, is Matt McCoy, who plays the Bridges of Honor star, the the TV <clears throat> show within the movie. He plays Exley's father in the L.A. Confidential TV That's show. Cool. Yeah, Lloyd Braun. Yeah. 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 It's pretty interesting. Uh, and uh, it was uh, the guy from Scott Pilgrim was one of the characters in that, too. Oh, was he? I think. Yeah. Mark Weber. Is that his name? Oh, yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Interesting. Cool. There was also slated to be a sequel to L.A. Confidential. I can't remember if there was a title for it or not, but it was supposed to be a sequel. And it was supposed to have uh, Guy Pierce and Russell Crowe both returning as their characters, as well as it'd be the screenwriter also returning. And I think Curtis Hansen was also developing this when he was alive uh, before he passed away. But the sort of third star that was supposed to be in that was... Chadwick Boseman, who unfortunately passed away. And yeah, yeah, the uh, screenwriter had met him while he was directing the movie 42. I think he directed Mm -hmm. it, or he may have just written it. I think think he directed it also. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, now I I don't know if that's going to happen now because it seems like Boseman was a pretty integral part of the of the story. Like they wanted his character, they wanted an actor of his caliber to be able to like carry, you know, at Mm. least one of the storylines. So I don't know. It, it might still happen. It might be up in the air. But uh, that would have been, I mean, really something. He was an actor who I just, you know, really electrified everybody. Yeah. 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 So that's that, that's that's really really sad. Yeah. Yeah. But you know, maybe they will make the movie and they'll be able to sort of do it as a sort of tribute to him or you know put some sort of in memoriam of him because I think that would be nice. Yeah. Yeah. I also want to see these characters like 20 years on. I want to see that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there could be I would I would be interested in seeing where they change. Um oh, I think it was also the the sequel was supposed to be 
set around what is it the symbionese liberation army the patty hearst story that sort of thing right yeah interesting yeah yeah so i i don't know i mean that could have been something could have been you know maybe we'll see it happen maybe we'll never know i don't know Mm -hmm. it's a mystery Mm. yeah okay so now let's do the thing blaine what did you think about this film yeah I mean, I think it's one of those perfectly written, perfectly directed films. There's like a tension between the two that, you know, uh, like we discussed. And it's hard because it is these – it's it's pretty not nice to everyone in it, but the heroes are three white men. And so it's, sometimes it's kind of hard to watch being like, oh, yeah, this was – kind of what the world was like and this is what the world continues to be like in in some places as well so that kind of took me out of it sometimes and which is why when you mentioned Chadwick Boseman being in the sequel I'm like yeah I want to see that like that sounds like a really interesting place to go with this I though I think I think the movie is also like it's not explicit about this but I think it is also like trying to you know underscore that that's a problem yeah you know <laughs> yeah like by the end of the movie, I think we're all kind of, like, sick of, like, old white men. <laughs> and by the end of this podcast, I'm sure you are, too. Mm-hmm. Um, I know so, I am. But I, yeah, like, I, I think, like, everything depicted in this movie is is kind of, you know, under under scrutiny. Yeah. Yes. I, I think it should be. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's kind of, I mean, not to say shining a light on it, but it kind of is. Like, I think... In the world of like in the old media landscape, the thing that was shown was only like the pristine, only like the good, only like yeah, good cops doing good things, helping the TV people. show within this movie. Yeah, yeah. and this yeah, yeah, is exactly. showing everything. It's gritty. Everybody's flawed. Everybody's corrupt. Which is you know one way of looking at it, but you know at least it's more honest than the other way. Mm-hmm. So I'm gonna say. Yeah, entirely rewatchable. It made me want to read the book for the first time. I think I'm going to delve into that that series and and that world because it seemed like a really, I don't know, entertaining, interesting, fun one to go down and to nice. be in for a little while. What about you, JM? Yeah, I mean, I I still just love love this movie. I I mean, yeah, there, I as great as Kim Basinger is looking at it now I, I certainly wish she had a, a larger role like I mean there aren't a lot of great roles for women in this movie but again like this is about like you know a a sort of uh, political ecosystem where men were in charge and I think it's very much about the problems that existed when <laughs> men were in charge specifically in this time period so I, I, I mean, yeah, like I, I certainly there are things that could have been expanded upon, but it's a pretty long movie already. I, it is funny to look at the poster. If you go back and look at like the original theatrical poster, it looks like a movie. If you just go by the poster, it's a movie about Kim Basinger in a low cut dress. Hey, Kevin Spacey's <laughs> there. And I don't know who those two guys in the back are. <laughs> like, you can barely see Guy Pearce and Russell Crowe. But no, I, yeah, this is just a movie that's kind of an all timer for mm-hmm. me. I, you know, I think it's partly maybe I'm clouded because I I saw it when I was young and it made a big impression. But like even watching it now, it's just so involving. It's so good. You know, I, I watched it with my wife. We had kind of gotten home late, and uh, you know, we, we had to work the next morning, so we we're like. 
it was like 10 o'clock and I was like, we can't even watch, you know, half of it. Let's watch, you know, half an hour of it and we'll watch the rest tomorrow. And we stayed up and watched the whole thing because it, it was just impossible to turn nice. off. Uh, it's it's that involving and the performances are so good. It, I I forget how much I liked Russell Crowe. Yeah, like, he was really good. If you were to ask me, if, yeah, he's so good. If you were to ask me if I like Russell Crowe, I no. would probably say not really. But he yet he stars in one of my favorite movies and gives a fascinating performance. I. Yeah, there's something about this movie, and you notice things that you hadn't noticed before. You and, and also like those moments resonate. Uh, yeah, everything you know, even it's just small things like the part where Guy Pierce goes to ask Kevin Spacey to help him with his investigation, and he's just sitting at the desk deciding, and you don't know what he's going to do, and then he kind of just suddenly gets up from the desk and it's like, all right, let's go. And and the and the music kicks in like moments like that are just uh, have this uh, potency even now where uh, yeah the story just works so well for me I yeah I I don't even know if I can like totally quantify what it is about the movie like I think it really is the character because the themes that we've been talking about these themes of like you know artifice versus reality and and show business versus what is actually happening in Hollywood are so obvious and so like unsubtle in the way they're presented but then the way it's characterized and the way it's uh, dramatized and the way it's created by the filmmakers and the craft of it is just so involving and so uh, captivating that, uh, yeah, I, I just love it. I, I would watch it again now. And also, like, the fact that it, it doesn't kind of stop to take those nostalgic flourishes where you feel like the filmmakers are consciously looking back at a time, you know, looking back at, at something that's passed uh, under the microscope of like modern filmmaking. It, it never does that. So you just have this immediacy, this, this feeling that you're living in the story and not like you're, uh, you know, part of some kind of throwback that uh, that exists only to kind of wallow in in some romanticized version of the past. It's just got it's just got something about it, and I will return to this movie for the rest of my life. And I, and I, I'm glad that that it's a, a movie that that we have. Uh, what about you, Rob? Wow. I yeah. I mean, I didn't uh, have like particularly strong feelings going into it, but. I did find it like a totally engaging and rich experience. I found myself, I mean, it's a movie that you really have to pay attention to in order to get the the ins and outs of the plot, which, I mean, I guess you don't have to get the ins and outs of the plots, but I find it so enjoyable to, you know, put together the, to solve the mystery with the characters. And I really found myself like, you know, stopping and sort of rewinding to get things that I'd missed and, like, trying to figure out how everything sort of fit together as the characters tried to fit everything together. And it was a really engaging experience. Like, there are, there are a few movies where... I mean, there are so many movies where if you don't get something, you just sort of don't care and you just sort of, like, keep watching. And you're like, ah, there's a good guy and there's a bad guy. And that's all you really have to need to know. But the richness of this movie and the and the sort of the details make it a really fun exercise. 
Um, and yeah, so I, I really enjoyed it. I will totally watch it again. I think it's a great uh, crime movie. And um, yeah, I can see why it has an almost perfect rating on Rotten Tomatoes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, are we on? We should be on Rotten Tomatoes. I, I think you know we we should. I, I don't know. Can't we? Are, don't our opinions matter? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> no, no, they don't. This is a yeah, podcast. It's a hard no. Well, I just want that kind of power. I want the power of Dwight Garner, you know, to to ruin a perfect movie, you know. <laughs> okay, great. So we're all agreed. Yeah, totally rewatchable. Yeah, and that, that Kiefer Sutherland pilot. We're all agreed. Not rewatchable. <laughs> I need to see it now. <laughs> <laughs> and that's rewatchability for this week. You can find us on Apple Podcasts. That's where you subscribe. Be sure to rate us and write a little review if you'd like. Uh, that helps people find the podcast. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter if you want to send us a little message or hear from us. Also, you can email us if there's a movie that you would like us to cover, and that's at rewatchability at gmail.com. And if you'd like to become a Patreon, you can do that at patreon.com slash rewatchability and donate anything you want. It really helps us. And, uh, yeah, anything else? Uh, no. Merry Christmas. Yeah. 